history happened everywhere. Out of office. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge, find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir and I am here in the HHE studio with the computer chip to my potato chip. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Hello. This week, Peter and I are taking an undeserved break to tan ourselves on a lovely nudist beach somewhere. But that doesn't mean that you, dear listener, don't get an episode of HHE. So we've desolated in your absence and found ourselves for this one-off episode researching achievement in Taiwan during 1914 to 1918, the First World War. That's right, Ryan. We're off to Taiwan. So grab some stinky tofu and a bag of microchips and join us as we learn about the achievements on the island during the time of the First World War, including halting health hazards, a competition with no winners, and the cultural changes which made women's toes curl. Plus, we're going to meet one specific woman who, whilst working as a teacher, spent her days off wandering into the forest in search of real-life headhunters. Welcome to Taiwan. So Ryan, why don't you get us started and orient us in the world? Where are we? Well, let's start first with the name. Officially called the Republic of China, but because 54% of the population are seeking independence, it's more commonly known as Taiwan. You might also have heard of it as being called Chinese Taipei, uh, which they use at international events like the Olympics. But we're going to use Taiwan for this episode. That's the one I know. (laughs) Yeah. So whatever you call it, though, this is an East Asian island. It's 100 miles off the coast of China. Hong Kong is to the left, the Philippines to the south, and Japan in the top right. Gotcha. Famous for its coastline, its mountains, and its hot springs, this is an island which covers 36,000 square kilometres. That's about one-fifth the size of France. Oh, that's bigger than I thought, to be honest. It's home to 23 million people, of which only 2% are indigenous. Wow. Taiwan is one of the most densely populated countries in the world, of which 2.6 million people live just in the capital, Taipei City. I must be busy. I don't want to get on a bus. Talking of people, do you know any famous Taiwanese? Uh, Yes, I'm going to say Michelle Yeoh. Incorrect. Okay. (laughs) Ang Lee. Ang Lee. Director, oh, Ang Lee. Film director Ang Lee. Director of Hulk, Life of Pi, Brokeback Mountain, for which he won the Academy Award. That's a good famous child. Child? Child of the country. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining a little kid running around. I'm like, what did I not Action. know about Ang Lee? <laughs> uh, the national animal is the Formosan black bear. Oh, yeah. It's black, except it's got this white V-shape on its chest. Is it wearing a sweater of some kind? Yeah, that's what it kind of looks like. Yeah. (laughs) V-neck. Sadly, there are only about 300 left in the wild, but there are conservation efforts underway to try and improve that. The flag, Peter. Tell me about the flag. Well, it's red, basically. A big red flag, uh, except up in the top left corner where there's a blue rectangle. And within that blue rectangle is a white sun with 12 little rays around it. Oh, nice. Not stingrays. <laughs> That'd be super weird. The national anthem, Pete. Always love a national anthem. What have we got? This is controversial. <laughs> <laughs> there is a national anthem, and it is the Chinese anthem, Three Principles of the People. And it sounds a little something like this. 
classic, isn't it? Ranger, doesn't it? There's no doubt about that. That was a corker. That is a corker. So that's the Chinese national anthem. But the preference within Taiwan itself is for the national banner song, which is often played at international events like the Olympics. Famously played at the Olympics where the Taiwanese athletes won the gold over the Chinese athletes. And then the Chinese athletes had to stand there on the podium and listen to this anthem instead of the Chinese anthem. A little bit controversial, (laughs) like I say. Uh, Anyway, this one sounds like this. This is another good one, though. Oh, yeah, I like that one. Carmen. Very nice. Two good anthems, I would say. Very good anthems. I like them both very much. So I rang up Ang Lee, and uh, I said to him, Ang Lee, you have directed the Incredible Hulk film. You must be very excited and proud, but don't make me Ang Lee. wouldn't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> Taiwan facts! Ooh, hit me. Made in Taiwan. Ever heard of that? Oh, absolutely. That was the watchword of my youth. You turned a little object over and in little writing that said, made in Taiwan. Well, that's true. They are a big manufacturer of many things, but they're most famous for producing computer components and electronics. In fact, 60% of the globe's semiconductors, microchips, are produced in Taiwan, generating over 100 billion US dollars every year for the country. That's not bad for a small country, is it? Very tempting for any other country that would want to have a bit of that. What what kind of country would want that? 4.5 square miles of silicon is imported into Taiwan every year. Just in one big sheet. (laughs) (laughs) Just floated across the ocean. Yeah, 56 times the size of Alcatraz Island. Wow. (laughs) I'm glad you chose your measure there carefully. Well, everyone knows the size of Alcatraz. Now, in 1901, the Monopoly Bureau commissioned Takasago Beer, which they commissioned from a local beer company, which they later renamed in 1946 as Taiwan Beer. Taiwan Beer. Well, where's it from? It's flu's in the name. (laughs) And what makes it special is the use of the type of rice that they use in the fermentation process. They use a type of rice called Formosa rice, otherwise known as Taiwan rice. And it comes from the original name for the island, Formosa, named after the Portuguese words Ila Formosa, meaning beautiful island. Isn't that nice? It is nice. Yeah. Anyway, you can buy it. It's available in light and dark varieties. And we have some here to try today. Nice. Okay, what you have in front of you here, Peter, you'll notice it has a nice label that says Taiwan beer on it. All right, you want to give it a try? Let's do it. Oh. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the taste of Taiwan. Very refreshing. Taipei time. (laughs) It's Taipei time. (laughs) Anyway, there you go. What do you think? Nice. Yeah, would you drink that if you were in Taiwan? I would drink that here and now. (laughs) (laughs) Good job, because we got lots of them. (laughs) Cheers, Ryan. All right. Cheers, Petey. Mm. Ah, 
delicious. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Did you hear that? Hear what? That voice. What voice? What did it say? It said, ask Pete if he's heard the voice. What are you talking about? Well, I've been hearing voices all day. What kind of voices? What do they say? Well, they say all sorts of things, like, I should get out of bed, and I want a cup of tea. Ryan, I I think... I think those are just your thoughts. No, 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 no. No, I think the government has put a microchip in my brain and now they're sending me messages. What, about breakfast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just being daft. Am I, though? Yeah, it's all in your head. That's what I'm saying. Oh, Ryan, you're an idiot. Who said that? Okay, Ryan, it's my turn. Shall I give you a little bit of the history of Taiwan? I'd love to know a bit of history of Taiwan. All right, here we go. We start with early man. The first settlers using agriculture are believed to be around 3000 BCE. We'll call them the indigenous people of Taiwan. Gradually, you see some arrivals from China. You said China was just across the way, as it were. Some Mm. traders, some settlers, mostly Han Chinese. And this is the beginning of what you could call the triad of peoples that you find in the history of Taiwan. You have the indigenous people, Chinese people, and then a range of different visitors. Fast forward to about 1542, the Portuguese, as you rightly say, drove past and went, we'll call that Ila Formosa. Mm -hmm. It became known as Formosa, but they didn't stop. They just moved on. It was a drive-by naming. Uh, then <laughs> the uh, worst more... kind of naming. <laughs> they didn't even stop. We just got a new name just like that. 1624, Dutch traders arrive on the main island. They plan to use it as a station for commerce with Japan and China. They stay in a place that's now called Tainan. And the Dutch call it Taijouan. Taijuan. Sure correctly pronounced that, but that's the origin of the name for the whole island, Taiwan. Taijuan it comes from. Okay. Anyway, the Spanish are in the Philippines just to the south, and they get a bit of Taiwan envy, and they move in briefly to the north, but the Dutch kick them out. Yeah. So then the Dutch hanging out for quite a long time, until the early 1660s. But then a rebel, sometimes described as a pirate, named Koshinga, he comes over from China, where he's being rebellious, but not doing very well at it, getting driven out. He's trying to find a new base. So he goes, ah, Taiwan's handy. It's uh, an island. It's protected, and I'm getting kicked out of China myself. So he fights the Dutch, and he forces them to leave the island, leaving Koshinga in charge. Nice. To celebrate, he promptly dies of malaria. That's not so great. It was all the rage on the island at the time. Yeah. And then just a few years later, the Qing dynasty of China, they show up and take over the island, making it part of the Chinese empire. And it remains that way from 1683 to 1895. That whole period, the impression I get is the Qing empire didn't quite know what to do with it. They didn't encourage growth. They didn't really colonize it. They banned, in fact, for a long time, Chinese from even moving there. So it was just kind of there. But people did move, as inevitably they do. By 1811, the population was over 2 million people, apparently. Wow, that's quite a lot, actually. Yeah, For 1811. It's a surprising number. Now, the Japanese enter the scene. Uh, in 1874, there was a thing called the Mudan Incident, where a, some ships get wrecked on Taiwan. And fortunately, the survivors make it to shore, where they are promptly killed by the locals. Oh. <laughs> okay. I think it was 54 people get uh, murdered. So Japan send what they call a punitive expedition to the island. But for a punitive expedition, they don't really do much puniting. It was kind of more of a punitive colonization. They right. kind of moved in, basically. Okay. But then separately in mainland China, Japan and China have a good old-fashioned war. And it's way away from Taiwan. But at the end of that war, there's the Treaty of Shimonoseki in 1895, which, amongst other things, just handed Taiwan to the Japanese. So now, suddenly, these Taiwanese are like, oh, no, you're Japanese now. And now they're a Japanese colony. But before they, that really takes off, in 1895, the people of Taiwan declare the Republic of Formosa. You mentioned Formosa earlier. So they're saying, we want to be independent. We don't want to be Japanese. And this independent republic lasts for about five months before the Japanese arrive and put pay to it. That's it. Just five months. I read that the president who was 
elected to the Republic of Formosa actually bailed in 10 days. 10 days? <laughs> <laughs> now, from 1895 to 1945, Taiwan remained a colony of Japan that whole time. Uh, and this is obviously a time of mixed feelings. A lot of development took place. And we're going to talk about that, so I won't go on about it. But also, it was a colony. So generally speaking, Japan, like any other colonizer, isn't there just to make the place nice. They're using it for their own benefit. So then 1945, obviously, we know that Japan finds itself on the losing side of World War II. Taiwan then becomes part of China again. But this is where it gets complicated for our uh, Taiwan followers. In China, there was a Chinese civil war between Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, aka the Kuomintang, and the communists of Chairman Mao. Communists push Chiang Kai-shek back, 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 until they end up just withdrawn just into Taiwan itself and a few of the neighbouring islands. But rather than the people in Taiwan say, OK, we give up, we'll just be Taiwan, they say, we are China. We're going to call ourselves the Republic of China. But in reality, they had no power beyond the islands themselves. So this caused a problem. Basically, had two governments claiming to represent the whole of China, one based in Taiwan and one based in China itself. And from 1949 to 1971, the Republic of China, a.k.a. Taiwan, sat in the United Nations as China, despite the fact that they had no control over the vast majority of the, the country of China. I mean, it is incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And it was only in, uh, just in 1971, everyone went, oh, this is crazy. The People's Republic of China, so the Communist China, was recognised by the United Nations as representing China. But this leaves Taiwan in a funny position because Taiwan isn't saying we're Taiwan. They're still saying, no, we're China. So what are they? So life goes on in Taiwan. In the 1960s, there's massive economic growth, industrialization. This was called the Taiwanese miracle. Hmm. Through this growth, they become the United States' 11th biggest trading partner they've got currency they've got a military you can get a Taiwanese passport or a Republic of China passport but that passport you can travel the world on it but you can't get into a United Nations facility with it because they, the UN does not recognise the Republic of China yeah. today 13 of 193 UN member states maintain diplomatic relations with Taiwan but it's technically not even recognised by its own most important ally the US so today Taiwan's an economic power it's a crucial ally for the US but the US doesn't actually officially agree that it exists and i looked it up the united states department of state website and they say this though the united states does not have diplomatic relations with taiwan we have a robust unofficial relationship a robust unofficial a robust unofficial relationship so there you are it's this weird gray area netherworld of a state is is it a country is it not a country is it china is it not china it's taiwan and that sir is the history of taiwan got a sketch now for that do you want to hear it sure Ding, ling, ling. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Trading. How can I help you? And then an American accent. Oh, this shop appears to be entirely empty and unstaffed. What am I to do? Um, actually, I'm right here. Hello. Oh, I would love to buy this bag of rice, but with nobody here to tell me how much it is, I am helpless. Well, well, that bag is $10, if that helps. I guess I will never know how much this bag of rice is. I'll put $20 here in this totally unstaffed empty counter. Thank you very much. And here's your change, $10. Oh gosh, what luck. I've just spotted $10 randomly left on the counter. What luck. I will take that. Okay, thanks for visiting Taiwan Trading. Have a nice day. You too, buddy. Damn it. Don't tell China I said that. <laughs> nice. I'm just going to cut that in. <laughs> You'll bother editing it. Just shove that no in. Paid, no, nothing. no, nothing. There it is. <laughs> So we're going to talk about achievement in Taiwan, Ryan, and I would like to get us going, if I may. 
tell me some stories about achievement in Taiwan during the Great War. Don't mind if I do. Okay, cool. Uh, so, as you say, this this is the First World War, but Taiwan wasn't really part of the First World War in a significant way. It was obviously a long way away. But the period falls entirely within Japanese colonialism. This is Taiwan under the control of the Japanese. So really, this is the story of the early days of Japanese rule. And that leaves us with a little bit of a tricky position because I'm going to tell you a bit about the achievements, and I'm going to put that in, well, not necessarily inverted commas, of the Japanese colonial rule. But it is important to remember that with the colonial situation, it, it might result in good things, but it's really actually motivated by a desire to altruistically help the nation itself. It's more of a case of more a business transaction and investment in their their property, if you like. So, for example, you might improve people's health because healthy workers work longer and harder and you don't have to worry about uh, them not showing up for work because they've got malaria or whatever. So, you know, it's a, it's a colonial story, but it is undeniable that the Japanese um, involvement in the country led to some very significant improvements. Uh, I'm going to start with health and sanitation. Japanese administrators and engineers really helped transform the water quality in Taiwan, water being a transmitter of disease in a lot of ways and uh, certainly dirty water being a health hazard. In 1896, there was a Scottish sanitary engineer called William Burton who was brought to Taiwan to oversee the construction of sewers, modern water treatment plant in Taipei. Uh, and that and a load of other projects caused a steady decline in cholera. So I would say that's an achievement. They also looked at targeting malaria and the plague, the plague of all <laughs> things. Um, and they made efforts to rodent-proof island ports. They drained mosquito-infected wetlands. They also um, implemented laws that were hygiene laws. So they required you to clean your house intensively. And again, this is a, a freedom versus health question. They implemented compulsory blood tests with people found infected subject to quarantine. Mm. But uh, harsh though as, as those things were, they were effective. Altogether, in the early 20th century, I don't have exact World War I dates because it was a bit of a broader achievement, the life expectancy for Taiwanese rose by over 50% over 30 years. That's actually quite considerable. That's substantial, isn't it? 50% more life. That's incredible. Uh, and it wasn't just health. They also want to modernise agriculture. They massively invested in the cultivation and processing of sugar in particular. Uh, and sugar production rose from 1 million metric tonnes in 1905 to 12 million in 1939. And where products are grown, they need to be transported. So in the early 20th century, that generally meant railways. Uh, and the Japanese invested heavily in railways between 1914 and 19. The length of the railway lines in Taiwan went from about 365 kilometres to over 900 kilometres. Not 100% on that figure, but certain that loads of railway expansion happened. In 1915 alone, five stations were opened on the Tamsui to Taipei line. And in 1916, there was a branch off that took people from Beitou to the hot springs of Shinbeitu, which isn't a long line, but it was Taiwan's first railroad to open for tourism purposes. Yeah, nice. And I love a hot spring. Uh, uh, who doesn't enjoy a hot spring? Mm. Wallow in a hot spring and uh, drink a cold beer in a hot spring. And then a train home. Perfect. Sounds great. And there's one sort of, uh, it's not necessarily in and of itself an achievement, but it kind of exemplifies the Japanese era. The Japanese developed the presidential office building in Taipei. Okay, so this is a building that's still in use today. Uh, it's a seat of government, but they wanted to create a, a home for Japanese government, basically. And they decided to run a competition for architects. So the architects entered the competition. There was a strong favourite for the win, a guy called Kichibei Suzuki. And to everyone's surprise, he didn't win. 
there was a design by someone called Uheiji Nagano and he entered and he was the best of the entries but they didn't like it enough to let him win so they just said right you've come second mm. there is no winner <laughs> <laughs> wait so what he won the competition but they said sorry you, you've won you're the best of the designs but your design still isn't good enough for us to build a building and uh so sorry you've come second even though you were the best i guess that makes sense you don't want to commit yourself to building a building you don't like the look of no you don't so you're, they bring in the whole you're limited to what has been presented in front of you i guess <laughs> that is true it's yeah. bold it's a bold move though because they bring in another architect called uh, moriyama and he just adapts the second place design mostly by there's a it's kind of a long wide building with a tower in the middle and essentially as far as i can see all he did was jack up the tower a bit and make it a lot higher and and that's what they built in it started construction in 1912 and completed in 1919 nicely nestling within our time period i like that and it lasted through the various changes of ownership and government and it today is a presidential home and uh, that's 100 years later and it's still serving its purpose and you could go and see it if you want that sounds like an achievement to me it's me too yeah i have no sketch for that <laughs> Okay, well, look, I'm going to leap off the back of that with something very similar about the changes that occurred during the Japanese colonial period. So in 1895, as you say, Japan started its colonial war over Taiwan, and it was a tough time, as you rightly pointed out. Tens of thousands of people were killed. Many women were forced to work as comfort girls in military brothels. Understandably, these horrors caused a lot of pain, and it won't be forgotten. But there are some who point out, as you rightly have, that the Japanese occupation also had its positive sides. As you said, railways, roads, bridges, irrigation systems, reservoirs, schools, hospitals, the vaccination programs, implementing a new modern legal system. In fact, in 2015, Taiwan's president, Ma Ying-yao, talked about this and he said that it's important to remember the good things Japan did for Taiwan, but never forget the bad stuff either. He said that if we can tell kindness from grievances, then a lasting friendship with the Japanese can be built. And with that in mind, I'd like to chat about some of the more positive ways that Taiwanese society became more progressive under colonial rule, specifically when it comes to gender. Now, before the Japanese arrived, Taiwanese women lived in a society where, and I quote, an ignorant woman is a virtuous woman. <laughs> That's not how I prefer them, but okay. <laughs> That's right. So at this time, women had no independence. They were expected to obey their fathers, their husbands, and even their sons. If a husband died, the widow's father would choose another man for her to marry. And to make matters worse, women were kept secluded in their homes because of the traditional practice of foot binding. Now, for those unaware, foot binding was a practice that started in China around the 10th century, supposedly because an emperor fell in love with a dancer who had tiny feet. Inevitably, small feet then became fashionable and over time a cultural practice emerged which involved bending and wrapping young girls' feet so tightly that as they grew up, their feet became deformed into what's called a three-inch lotus shape. As you can imagine, that was incredibly painful for the women and often required continued maintenance to prevent the smell of rotting flesh from stenching up the room. Oh no, that's not nearly a sex as advertised. Yeah, exactly. And yet, despite all of this, footbinding was still considered a symbol of beauty and class for centuries. A necessity, in fact, for any woman wanting to get married. But when the Japanese occupied Taiwan, they brought with them a different set of values and beliefs. Most notably, these were embodied in an organisation called the Patriotic Ladies' Association. 
Founded in Tokyo in 1901 by a group of noblewomen, the association was established as a means for females to contribute towards the success of the Japanese Empire. This mostly took the form of helping wounded soldiers and supporting the families of those that had been killed in battle. But when they opened branches in Taiwan, they were shocked by some of the less progressive practices on the island, and so they focused their attention on social and public welfare, specialising in the education of young women. They set up vocational schools, training centres and language programmes and in 1914 they contributed towards a total ban on female footbinding. And so, thanks to the Patriotic Ladies Association of Taiwan, local women gained more independence and a better place in society. They could finally leave their traditional family role and contribute to the community, taking part in public affairs and helping Taiwan grow. And it was because of these women that the groundwork was laid for the future development of women's rights in Taiwan, a country which in 2016 and then 2020 overwhelmingly voted in a landslide in favour of Tsai Ing-wen, making her the nation's first female president. Nice. I can imagine the biggest beautiful campaign brackets includes feet. <laughs> <laughs> Got a sketch? Yeah. Oh, go sketch me. So I'm going to sketch you Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. Okay. All right. Empress, how do you find the festivities? Well, I enjoy them very much, especially that dancer with the crooked penis. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yes, I find a grotesquely bent penis very sexy. <laughs> I see. In fact, I declare that from now on, and for centuries to come, all young boys must have their penises bent in half and strapped in place, such that when they grow older, their penis is shaped with a similarly dynamic and sexy-looking 180-degree angle. But won't that be incredibly painful for them and require urinating upon themselves? Eh, I like what I like. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Ryan, you've inspired me to share a tale of a remarkable woman, Janet B. Montgomery McGovern. Nice. Yeah, you're in already, aren't you? <laughs> Scottish? Uh, I, I'm not clear, actually. I'll have to find out. Uh, she travelled to Taiwan. She stayed there between September 1916 and 1918. Well, that's in our time period. Bang in, right? So she was there to work as a teacher, but she had a bunch of time off. So she was also a bit of an anthropologist, and she decided she wanted to discover the lives of the indigenous people of Taiwan. So in terms of achievement, her first achievement was convincing anyone to let her go and do this at all. So she writes, When it was learnt that my inclination lay in another direction, that of tramping the island, especially the mountains, and getting into as close touch as possible with the Aborigines, I received several calls from horrified officials. Well, yeah, I can imagine so. Yeah, but still she went. Eventually she finds her way into the company of various headhunting tribes. So these various tribes had slightly different traditions, but there were active headhunters in the island of Taiwan, especially in the mountain. No way. That's yeah. amazing. So she describes her first encounter. Her guide, who she's, who's taken her up into the mountains, offers to carry her across a particularly deep river. And uh, he's startled by something halfway across and he drops her in the river. <laughs> <laughs> the head, she kind of struggles out. The headhunters must have thought this was like Uber Eats or something. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> bringing your food. <laughs> oh, so this is what she writes. Light of heaven, the man replied in a low voice between chattering teeth. Cold river, I guess. 
Be not angry. It is a saban, a hut, a head cutter. There, with a motion of his head, he indicated a figure that I had not seen standing at the edge of the water. Yeah, that's creepy. Creepy, right? But rather than have her head cut off, Miss McGovern is assisted out of the water by the headhunter, who is actually very pleased to see her, and they treat her really well. She she finds out, because she's white, this is her conclusion, because she's white, they think she is some sort of avatar or descendant of the Dutch colonists who they really like. So they have this feeling. In fact, she says, "Uh, I'm certain in their minds they had the conviction that I was the spirit of one of the beloved white rulers of old, returned from the element. Wow, that's kind of cool. Oh, yeah, she's awesome. We love her. So, uh... They've taken her as a kind of a, not quite goddess, but like I say, some sort of avatar. Anyway, she takes the opportunity to learn what she can about the headhunters, uh, including the matter of achievement, which in headhunting culture, it generally involves hunting a head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, getting the head, I think, is the achievement, right? Yeah, exactly. So she writes that this, among the Taiyal tribe, one can tell at a glance who has, quote, a head to his credit <laughs> by the presence or absence of a tattoo mark on the chin. Occasionally one sees the insignia of a successful headhunter tattooed on the chin of young boys. This indicates that these boys are the sons of famous headhunters and that their hands have been laid upon heads decapitated by their fathers. Lovely. Then among the Pai one, slightly different, the successful warrior is denoted by a cap rather than a tattoo. But love to catch a head, these guys. I, I'm, I'm noticing that both the tattoos and the hats are head-related. <laughs> They didn't yeah, get the tattoo true. done elsewhere. <laughs> there must be a reason for that, right? Yeah, you think. It's going to be the most prominent thing, I suppose. Mm. But the headhunters, it, it, as an achievement, it's quite important. In some cases, you have to have done it before you can even get married. She says, in this case, the tattooing must be done before marriage. This in order to show that he is a successful warrior and therefore entitled to enter the married state. Wow. So I've got to chop a head before I can get married. That's right. That's, mm. uh, never mind three times your salary on a diamond. You've got to get out there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and murder. But uh, the one thing that I found particularly interesting, and this book is available on uh, online, there's free text for it. It's, it's quite an interesting read. Uh, she's kind of witnessing the decline of the headhunting tradition. So tying it back to what you said about the Japanese outlawing the foot binding, they also outlawed headhunting. So the headhunters couldn't really headhunt anymore. And they were trying to find ways to kind of adjust their lives to this. So she says, of the Paiwan, which is one tribe, they have a game. This game consists of a contest between several warriors trying to impale on a bamboo lance a bundle now made of bark, which is tossed in the air, the one who catches it on the point of his lance being considered the victor. Tradition asserts that in the olden days, it was a human head, that of a slain enemy, that was thus tossed about, a mere bundle of bark being considered a poor substitute. Yeah, I would have said that was a poor substitute. I can just imagine them sort of just grumbling as they throw this bark <laughs> around. All right, I suppose. <laughs> hate this. Well, it's worse for the Payuma tribe. On a festival day held annually, a monkey is tied before the bachelor dormitory. So all the men in the village, the unmarried men live in a one hut, I guess. Yeah. So the monkey is tied before the bachelor dormitory and killed by the young men with arrows. After it's killed, oh, the no. village throws a little wine three times towards the sky and three times on the ground near the body of the dead monkey. Now, the old people of the Payuma tribe explain that in the good days of old, in inverted commas, a prisoner captured from some other tribe was always sacrificed on these festal occasions. Mm. But now they have to be satisfied with an inferior substitute. Do you reckon they shave the monkey? <laughs> Just to make, to make it, it a bit more realistic. Yeah, a little, a little bit more too. <laughs> uh, Possibly, possibly. <laughs> but uh, there's quite specific as to why this is an inferior substitute, because apparently uh, what used to happen is you'd write messages on the arrows as you fired these arrows into the prisoner and he died. Right. He would take those messages to your ancestors in oh, heaven. Oh, okay. Whereas a monkey could do that i guess yeah hello so, hello joan exactly how, how's, hope things how's are worse. Things? <laughs> 
Might see you soon. <laughs> right. So she documents the, the habits of the headhunters, their culture, their religion, and she's, you know, takes a proper anthropological view. She's not all pearl clutchy about it. And she's not squeamish about the headhunting at all. In fact, to bring it back to our World War One theme, she compares the horrors of headhunting to the industrial scale carnage that's happening in Europe at the same time. She says, Yet what is war between civilized races except headhunting on a grand scale, only with accompanying mangling and gassing and other horrors? Wow. Right? So for two years, 1916 to 1918, Janet McGovern B. Montgomery McGovern, I've written too many McGoverns. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> So for two years, from 1916 to 1918, Janet B. Montgomery McGovern heads into the wilderness on her days off school, don't forget, just to hang out with headhunters and learn their ways. And she collects it all into a book. She publishes it in 1922, and it's entitled Among the Headhunters of Formosa. And if that's not an achievement, I don't know what is. Yeah, that's one heck of an achievement. What a brave <laughs> woman. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's, a, it's, a really, it's, it's available on Project Gutenberg. So if you want to read it, it's uh, definitely worth a look. And through this clearing, we see the majestic headhunters. The family group have been tracking their prey for well over a week. Finally, cautiously, an adolescent male approaches. Ooh, hey, are you David Attenborough? This question, primitive but effective, demands a response. Yes, I am David Attenborough. Oh, great, I love you. Caution must be taken. One wrong move could result in the removal of my head. I don't want to take your head. This brutal headhunter, determined to prove his manhood, cannot be trusted. Oh, David, I'm not a headhunter. I just want you to sign me book. And in this moment, the truth is revealed. The tribe are not headhunters. They have fooled their prey and revealed something much worse. Autograph hunters. Oh, come on, sign me book, David, please. Relentless, unstoppable, annoying. Oh, come on, David, just sign me book. Sensing danger, the crew must retire quickly, else they will face signing autographs for the rest of the day. Oh, and I've got this T-shirt, and a, oh, a mug too, and my calendar. It is clear an offering must be made to satiate his lust. Oh, great. Can you make it out to eBay customer? And there is the trick. A sacrifice made, and the hunt is complete. The tribe will feast tonight. Thanks, David. Thank you, Ryan, for that whistle-stop tour of fascinating fun facts from Taiwan. Thank you, Peter. This has been an out-of-office, so there will be no desolation because we already know what the next episode will be. It will be Easy Does It in North America, 10,000 BCE. That's right. Of course, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've learned about Taiwan on the show, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach out to us through our website, hhepodcast.com, or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, feel free to send me any facts you have about Easy Does It in North America. 
<laughs> Crowdsource. <laughs> but seriously, we would love to hear from you. Uh, we, we always love it when we get a little message from one of you. So please do send it out to us. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. You just might. And if you're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter or Mastodon, you can find us at HHE Podcast. That's right. And if you subscribe to one of those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content. And we'll be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to you, Ryan. And thank you to you, Peter. And I guess that's it. All that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. Hey, Ryan. Oh, hey, Pete. Oh, what are you up to? You know what? You're just in time, actually. I'm, I'm writing up my notes, but I can't remember how to spell the name of Taiwan's capital city. Oh, Taipei. Yeah? Yeah, Taipei. Right. Yeah, Taipei. Well, that's it. That's it. Well, that can't be right. Well, what do you mean? Well, I typed A three times, like you just said, and that spells R, which doesn't seem right at all. Ah. Yeah, exactly. That's not right. Oh, Ryan, you're an idiot. Oh, yeah, you're right. I must have made a typo. Oh. See? Okay, bye.